Welcome to this episode of the Education Endowment Foundation podcast, Evidence into Action, where we have the privilege of interviewing experts from the field of education alongside a range of brilliant teachers and school leaders. My name is Alex Quigley, National Content Manager at the EF, and this episode is all about mathematics. And I have the great pleasure of interviewing three experts in mathematics. We start off with Simon Cox, who is our very own content manager for mathematics at the Education Endowment Foundation, but he's also a maths teacher and director of Blackpool Research School too. So he's a busy man. Second up is Craig Barton, former maths teacher, author of books for maths teachers, and also expert podcaster. And it was a great privilege to engage on the other side of the virtual table to chat to Craig about everything mathematics. And then finally, we have our expert, Fliss James, who's an ELE and a practitioner at Sheringham Nursery School in London, which is also our East London Research School. So we get a real array of practitioners and experts who cover lots of different phases of mathematics, and we really get to explore everything maths. Very happy to introduce Simon Cox. Um, Simon, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm currently maths content specialist at the Education Endowment Foundation, uh, and that's a new role that I've been doing for about the last 12 months. Um, involves lots of different exciting things like talking to various people um, out there about maths, so people like Maths Hubs and, and Cambridge Maths and all sorts of different um, players in, in, in the maths system, um, and also developing training alongside the research schools network, um, and also getting to grips with a lot of the evidence around maths um, all the way from early years right up to Key Stage 3, which, uh, which our guidance reports um, currently cover um, and also I have um, a dual role so I, I currently work in school um, I've worked in Blackpool secondary schools for almost 20 years now as a secondary maths teacher uh, and I also head up the Blackpool Research School. So uh, when I'm not working for EEF, I work at the Research School, which is um, a network of schools nationally, which work with other schools in their region to support the use of evidence to guide uh, teaching and learning developments within within their schools. So, yeah, lot, really busy, lots of different uh, plates spinning all the time. I can definitely attest, Simon, to you having uh, multiple roles and a lot of work at the moment. And I know you're learning a lot as well because you've got those different different roles. So can you talk a little bit about over this last year in terms of mathematics and, and some of the existing evidence about misconceptions in maths, about effective teaching in maths? That There's a lot to take in in terms of what might have changed and developed over the last year. What's your perspective on what we've learned about mathematics teaching in lockdown? So, yeah, I, th- I think what we've really learned is, is the importance of that classroom environment to great mathematics teaching. Um, obviously, teachers have done a fantastic job of remote learning, but some of those things that we know from the evidence that really drive great maths teaching, so using manipulatives, um, using heuristics for problem solving, discussing, um, questioning, all, all of those things that are part of a, a great maths teacher's toolkit have been really, really challenging to transfer online. And, and there's been some great 
attempts and efforts made to to transfer that over. But I think that that for me is the thing that's that's been really challenging. Those in the moment um, decisions that we make in the classroom, those relationships we have with our classes, the little look that people might give you and, and you know that means they need you to go over and give them that, that little bit of support, that little bit of help. Um, and those are the things that are really difficult to transfer to the remote classroom. If I can ask just a follow-up. So I think I've noticed over the past months that there's been a lot of parents and and some actual expert mathematicians but but parents reflecting on that math seems to be different now how maths is taught is different you know there are seemingly more methods can you just explore has maths teaching changed you mentioned about you know your 20 years of experience has maths teaching changed is there something that you think has changed for the better is there something that parents and everyone's in society is now recognizing about good maths teaching I think it has changed, yeah, and I think it has changed for the better. Um, so we've known for a long time that a lot of parents um, don't have the confidence to support their children's mathematics because perhaps of a lack of subject knowledge, um, you know, poor experiences themselves of maths at school um, and, and so on. But I think what we've really noticed during during the lockdowns is um, pedagogical subject knowledge and how important that is. So you're right, there's been a lot of, you know, there's a tendency, isn't there, to want to teach our children as parents, want to teach our children to do things in the way we were taught them at school. And when we have one method for working out something, whatever it is, we want them to use that same method. Uh, and I think actually that the different, ways of teaching mathematics you know there's a lot of uh, bar models and things like that used a lot of manipulatives um that really leads to that depth of understanding and i think what 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 those non-expert uh, mathematics teachers ne don't necessarily understand is that um actually by, by showing those different ways of doing something by getting that depth of understanding we're actually paving the way to better mathematicians in the future so when we do come back to one um one method which which often can be a bit procedural and there might not be an awful lot of understanding going on. It, it works, we get the right answer, but we don't really know why. Then later on down the line, that can cause some, some issues, which perhaps, um, you know, unless you've got that pedagogical subject knowledge, you wouldn't necessarily see that coming. So you, you talk there about the obvious value of, of teachers and that nuanced understanding of teaching mathematics and uh, probably a lot of assumptions there about early mathematics and um, and how we might you know use different methods like bar modeling etc can you talk a little bit about in in your experience has there been a, a strong influence in maths in terms of in the recent years about research evidence influencing practice and and has engaging with research evidence influenced you and your practice and and can you describe um, how that's changed your mathematics teaching so I think one area in which my maths teaching is developed by engaging with the research evidence is in the use of manipulatives in, in secondary mathematics teaching. Um, I think historically, manipulatives have been seen as something that primary schools use. And maybe by the time we get to secondary, we shouldn't be using them anymore. We should be moving away from those. That completely goes against what the evidence um, suggests we should be doing, by the way. So when our um, Key Stage 2 and 3 Mathematics Guidance Report came out, which is um, four years ago now, 
um, one of the sort of headlines, if you like, that people um, latched onto was was this importance of manipulatives. Um, and, and certainly as part of the training that we delivered in the research school to network, that was often the part that, that people really wanted to know more about how they could do this and how they could really work with manipulatives and embed those in their mathematics teaching. So certainly um, at my school, that's something that, that we identified as being a priority for us. Uh, and and we, we spent a quite considerable amount of time planning for it, actually using the manipulatives ourselves, playing with them in department meetings, thinking about ways in which they could support a mathematical idea or concept uh, before actually starting to use them with, with pupils. And again, giving them the opportunity to play with them a bit first. And, you know, we don't do enough of that, um, certainly at secondary, where we, we get to explore and, and play and, and, and think about the mathematics. Um, it, and that was that was a real eye opener for me. And Certainly, it, it, it reaped the rewards. I mean, we, we particularly focused in initially on the use of algebra tiles, which are manipulative, which are, are really great for use with early algebra, but also things like negative numbers. Um, and, and we as maths teachers were a little bit uncomfortable at first. We thought oh, that the kids aren't going to grasp this. And actually, the, the reverse was true. They were far more comfortable with using these manipulatives than, than we were initially. Um, and, and some of the concepts, some of the misconceptions that previously we'd seen opening up, particularly around negative numbers, because there's so many misconceptions there, actually weren't an issue by using these manipulatives and using them for longer and, and you know, not rushing away from them, not insisting on them being a temporary measure. Um, actually, we, we've seen the year groups that we started using those with go through school now without those usual misconceptions that, that we would expect. So, yeah, I, th I think that's, that's a, a really significant way for me in which, in which my perception of, of what we should be doing in math teaching has changed. And just to pick up on um, an earlier point you made around a misconception from secondary school teachers about kind of ending uh, a perceived primary practice. I know in the last year you uh, you've been closely involved with the um, New Gantt report on early years mathematics. What have you have you learned in terms of engagement with that evidence base and, and anything you've drawn out uh, more broadly thinking about your own teaching and, and mathematical understanding? Yeah, I've learned a huge amount. You know, I, I think as, as secondary practitioners, um, one of the things I've really learned is that we we need to know more about what's going on in the early years and key stage one because um, it, it probably isn't what we what we might have expected. And that importance of early maths uh, cannot be um, understated. I know we've got we've got Fliss um, on the podcast later on who who has taught me a lot personally because she was involved uh, in some of the research school uh, network work that's been done alongside that report. So yeah, for me, um, I think one of the things that we did um, as a research school a number of years ago when we first started working with the key stage two and three report actually was encourage um cross-phase collaboration so key stage two teachers working with key stage three teachers and as part of that we we um, had a system whereby people went into each other's classrooms to see what was going on. So primary learning from secondary and secondary learning from primary. Every single person without exception took a huge amount from that process, myself included, um, because we don't always have the opportunity uh, in the busyness of school life, uh, unless we're lucky enough to work in a through school or, or, or similar, to actually engage with what's going on within either the younger or older uh, year groups. So I think I would strongly recommend that if, if secondary teachers get the opportunity do try to engage with your local primary schools with local early year settings see the mathematics that's going on there we have a huge amount to learn um, from the way they approach um, 
certainly sort of discovery and and and, and using and, and and asking questions about mathematics and i think there's a huge amount that secondary uh, colleagues can take from that thank you sam that's that's really useful insight can i just ask you mentioned about the key stage two three guidance report uh, a number of years um, old now are there any developments around that report any resources that you can flag up that people might be interested in yeah, so so we um, are about to launch actually a series of blogs which are coming out over the next few months in which we um, reinvestigate, if you like, some of the findings from that report. So particularly around those aspects that are, are really relevant to classroom practitioners. So things like assessment and using manipulatives and problem solving and misconceptions. Um, and, and what we're going to be doing each month is, is exploring those aspects from the report. Um, and providing some some discussion questions, some prompt questions for teachers and leaders to think about what's going on in their schools at the moment. Think about how it aligns with the research evidence. Think about the great things that you're doing and the things that you might look to improve. Um, and then over the course of the the, the, the blog series, uh, we'll be encouraging schools to to prioritise the, the areas where they think actually there, there could be some work to do in our school here. And then to think about how to plan for that uh, moving forward. And my final question, Simon, it is one you mentioned um, assessment being a topic. And over the last year, we've had you know, all the challenges of, of lockdowns and multiple lockdowns and, and school closures and reopenings. Um, what's your position in the coming year ahead around the importance of assessment? So assessment's always important, obviously, but I think as uh, for, for the year ahead, I think it's going to take on particular significance. Um, I think it's really important, and certainly our evidence points towards this, that, that we don't see assessment as, as lots of exams, as formal testing. Obviously, that has its place, uh, and there's always going to be a place for that in schools, but to, to explore some of those other aspects of, of, of assessment. So diagnostic questions, little sort of multiple choice questions that we can ask as part of a lesson, just to see if any of our pupils have some of those common misconceptions that we know are likely to come up, see if we can have a discussion about why some pupils might answer a particular answer according to some of those those common misconceptions but also um questioning I'm, I'm i'm a big fan of a book called thinkers from atm which has been out for a number of years now um which just provides some really nice question prompts for teachers to use um and again that kind of assessment through discussion through observation um which often is seen again as a, as a sort of something that's used for, for younger children, I think really does have a place in secondary classrooms as well. Um, so thinking about rather than just taking sort of assessment as meaning tests, thinking about those other things that we can explore and really using that to pinpoint um, any misconceptions that might have arisen whilst children have been away from the classroom. And, you know, they, they might not, we, we don't know yet, but if they have, what are those misconceptions? And then really thinking as part of a team of mathematics teachers within a school, what are we going to do to address those particular misconceptions? And I think that that kind of assessment certainly needs to be at the forefront of our practice um, in, in the next year. That's a really valuable call to action, Simon. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. If you're a maths teacher, it's highly likely you've heard about Craig, you've heard from Craig before, but it's a real coup having him on this podcast. Um, and he really is the guru of podcasts himself. 
Um, I follow and listen to all of his podcasts. I've had the pleasure of being on the other side of the hypothetical interview table. So it's both really exciting and slightly nervy um, to introduce Craig, um, but he's a, he's a real bona fide maths expert. So Craig, can you introduce yourself, uh, a little bit about your background, and then particularly why you, you're interested in evidence and how that relates to your background as a maths teacher? Of course. Um, yeah, thanks, Alex. I do now insist on being called a guru, so I'm glad you got the memo excellent. about that. So that's excellent. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I um, well, where to start, really? I, I taught maths for um, 12 years without ever having picked up a piece of educational research. I was just living life with blissful ignorance. Um, my students seemed to enjoy maths. They used to get decent results. Uh, Ofsted used to love it when they used to come in my lessons. But when I look back now, I, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And it was only when I started my own podcast, uh, my Mr. Barton Maths podcast, and I started speaking to the world's leading experts like Dylan William, like the Bjorks, like yourself, and people who were well-read and had actually thought about what they were doing, that I realized there was a whole world of research out there that I was completely completely ignorant of. And that led to me having a bit of a mid-career crisis where I started reading things about spacing, about cognitive load theory, about retrieval, about motivation, just things I just never even considered. And yeah, that, that, that kind of got me down the rabbit hole of reading research and I've been a, an avid consumer ever since. I, I can really empathise. I think uh, your mid-career crisis, um, probably term it more positively than a crisis, <laughs> a, bit of a bit of a revelation. And I think, I think a lot of teachers who, you know, we invest a huge amount of emotion and, and energy and effort into the role. I think there's something um, in it about kind of finding some external challenge, external support that's really crucial. Um, we, our evidence indicates that teacher knowledge of like misconceptions and, and understanding of mathematics and some of those principles you've just mentioned is really important for teaching quality. What, what are your reflections on how you think schools should support math teachers? Should they be reading evidence? Should they be kind of exposed to these um, areas that they've never you know, perhaps heard of before? It's, it's a really difficult one. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, this sounds like a terrible plug, but I, as uh, just before the end of 2020, so the year just gone, I interviewed a load of maths researchers from Loughborough University from the Mathematics Education Centre there. And um, one of those interviews with, with Matthew Inglis, we talked about... Um, how teachers should consume research. Because the problem is, like, you, you, can, you can fall into the trap that I did, which was you go from reading nothing to then trying to consume everything. And mm -hmm. then you get this annoying thing where you read one paper and you think, oh, fantastic, I know what to do now. Then you read another paper that says that finding's a load of rubbish. And then you're like, well, well where do I even start? So the conclusion, that well, the, the kind of way I address things now is I always, when I, when I read things myself and when I'm lucky enough to work with other teachers, I always say, kind of read with a skeptical eye but also look for good curators of research that you trust. So for example, the EF would be one of those right at the top of my list. People who've kind of done the work and look at it in an objective way and will come across balanced when they reach their conclusions. Or someone like Tom Sherrington, who will consume a lot of research and, and summarize it. And, and if, he, if, if the EF or Tom mentioned something, and I want to take it a bit further, then I will do. But I, more and more these days, as my time gets drained away, I'm looking for good curators of education research to at least help me sift through the noise and get me to the good stuff, if, if that makes sense. Okay, so that, that's a really good kind of guide and, and pragmatic and given where current, currently teachers are in terms of workloads and challenges 
entirely realistic to and, and, and realistic for the future. If we can shrink it down into an area then, so um, you know, the evidence indicates that there are some common mathematical misconceptions. Um, do you think that there is that evidence out there, there is that understanding resources out there that give teachers the knowledge of what those key misconceptions might be? Yeah, I'll tell you what, you're asking for trouble here, Alex. So normally, as you know from my show, I normally do three-hour epics. I could talk for misconceptions for about 16 hours, probably, something like that. So I can only scratch the surface here, but you couldn't couldn't be asking me a better question. I absolutely love love thinking about misconceptions. Uh, You're right. Um, Certainly, it seems to be a a fundamental importance. If you want to help support your students, help them understand material better, you need to be aware of where they're likely to go wrong and then have some strategies up your sleeve to to help best support them. And what's really interesting about this, I always reflect upon this, for the first about five years of my teaching career, I was just constantly surprised, surprised by the mistakes and misconceptions that my students seem to make and hold. Because, and I think this is true of a lot of of novice teachers, um, you never made those mistakes yourself. If you're an English teacher, you were probably pretty decent at English. If you're a maths teacher, you're probably pretty decent at maths. So I was just permanently surprised with some of the some of the some of the answers my kids were coming out with I thought somebody had set them up I thought they were trying to wind me up or something and it's only as you gain more experience that you become aware of of where students are likely to go wrong and you can start to preempt and and plan for that so yeah whenever I'm lucky enough to um, work with teachers now or I'm planning lessons myself I often the starting point for me is where do I suspect students are likely to go wrong? What misconceptions do I suspect they're likely to have? How can I tease those misconceptions out to see if they're there? And if those misconceptions are there, what can I do about it? And this this is what I would term planning for error, as opposed to what I used to do, which was just trying to think on my feet. A child would come up with a, a wrong answer, and I'd have to think in the moment, where the hell's that answer come from? What am I going to do about it? Whilst a thousand other things are kicking off in the lesson. So trying to be aware of misconceptions before the lesson, preempting them and thinking how to deal with them. I think that's a real smart way to, to think, uh, well, one key component of planning lessons anyway. I really help that that focus on planning for error. Can you just explain what the difference is between a misconception and a mistake and, and what <laughs> might cause them? Yeah, that's a that's a biggie that Alex. You're asking all the big ones here. Now, um, there's 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 no as far as I'm aware, and I must say, kind of like disclaimer here, I'm I'm no expert on this, but as far as my reading has, has taught me, it, it's not black and white. It's very difficult to label something as this is definitely a mistake versus something this is definitely a misconception. But I think there is a, is a distinction between the two, even though the boundaries are, are a little blurry. So the way I look at it is this: um, if a child does a piece of work and there's an error in that work. If I say to them, I think there's something wrong there, just have a look over it again. If they can spot the error, I'm likely to categorize that as a mistake. The kind of silly mistake that everybody makes where perhaps we we misread something, we don't check it carefully enough, we make a slip. If however I say, look, there's an error there and the child can't find it, I'm more likely to suspect that maybe a misconception is is there. So I always use classic example of, of, of adding fractions. You know, I'm going to chuck some maths in here, Alex. So yeah. if, if, you, if you're adding a couple of fractions together, like three quarters and a third, if the child adds the two numerators together and adds the two denominators together and thinks that that's right, 
that seems to me a pretty fundamental misconception. There's a, there's a lack of understanding yeah. of how fractions work. If, however, they follow the correct process, but make a little slip in there, perhaps, you know, write an eight instead of a nine, and I say, there's an error there, and they spot it, then I'm more likely to label it as a mistake. That, that, that's how I distinguish between the two. Is there, is there a process where you kind of enact or you, or, or you nudge pupils to better focus on mistakes and just have a kind of quick kind of evaluation of what they've written on a monitoring of their, um, what they've written? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting one, this, because on the face of it, it seems like misconceptions are really bad news, whereas mistakes, oh, we can just resolve them really easily. But I think, if anything, it's, it's the other way around. Um, everybody makes mistakes. This is the problem, Alex. And it's apart from saying things like always check your work, which I don't yeah. think there is a phrase that has less of an impact on a child than check your work. Um, it's very hard to eradicate. But but the good news is, um, if if if, if students have a good understanding, those mistakes should be a relatively small part. Let's say if they're doing an exam, you might make one or two careless mistakes and all right, you only get 98% or whatever. Misconceptions are more serious. They, they suggest a lack of understanding, but the good news is they're more predictable. If, as we build up this bank of experiences, teachers were aware of where these misunderstandings come from. So as I said before, we can plan for them and we can, I, I, I'm a big advocate of diagnostic questions as many, many listeners will know. And I use diagnostic questions to try and draw out these common misconceptions that students would have so that then I can use resources, different representations, explanations to help students hopefully try to resolve them. So if anything, mistakes are, uh, they're a lot more unpredictable than the misconceptions, which makes them quite tricky to deal with. That's really helpful. Can I can I go back to the diagnostic questions? And I know you're a strong advocate for multiple choice diagnostic mm. questions. Can you just explain a little bit more about about why you think they're so effective? You know, what might be the strengths in terms of setting up a task to identify misconceptions, and and, and are there any limitations to this approach? Yeah, another, another biggie, Alex. If you've got three hours, I'll I'll do my best to, to answer this. This one is a great it's a great question, and th there's there's numerous strengths for them. So the the way I use diagnostic questions, I um on my diagnosticquestions.com website, uh, which is completely free, there's, there's no money in this. Um, they're all of the same structure. So there's one right answer and three wrong answers. Um, now there's lots of different ways of doing diagnostic questions. You can have an un unknown amount of right answers or wrong answers, which uh, decreases the chance of students getting them right via guesswork. But we just keep the structure the same just so it's easy to compare questions and, and so on and so forth but the key point of course is that each of the wrong answers is designed to reveal either a common misconception or perhaps a common mistake that students might make so the the first major advantage that they have is it goes back to this planning for error so if i if i've just taught a piece of content whatever it is uh, solving quadratic equations or whatever it might be what i can do is i can plan to ask a diagnostic question and let's say the correct answer is A. But let's also say that if, if, a, if a child answers B, I've got a pretty good idea why they've gone wrong to answer B, to, to choose B. Yeah. Likewise, if they answer C, that's for a different reason. That would reveal a different misconception. So the beauty of this is I can do all this thinking beforehand. And then I ask the question. And if it turns out there's a proportion of my students in the class that answer B, I've already done my thinking about how I'm going to respond to that. I've already got a resource up my sleeve, an explanation up my sleeve. I can use some of the explanations that the other students have given. So that's the first major advantage that I can do this planning for error. I'm not caught cold thinking on my feet. And the second one is they're just super quick to ask and collect data in. Now, this was dead easy when we're all in the classroom face to face with students because you just put up 
proper diagnostic question, the students either vote with ABCD cards or mini whiteboards or hold up fingers, one for A, two for B, so, sometimes use technology. But if anything, Alex, and this is what's really kind of surprised me and, and been quite heartwarming, is that it seems that diagnostic questions are actually a bit easier to ask and get responses from in the situation that all teachers find themselves yeah. in now teaching remotely. Because if you just put up a diagnostic question as part of one of your team's lessons or Google Classroom or whatever it may be, all you need to do is fire up a, a voting poll, ABCD, students vote. You can then get them to explain their answer in the chat function, or you can get one of these shared whiteboard tools. There's loads of different ways that actually you can replicate, or if not, improve upon the kind of practice for asking them and getting students responses in the classroom so so that's quite a quite positive I, I think yeah that's one reflection you know I've just been seeing a lot of sharing online a lot of teachers talking about you know these hacks and these ways of just enhancing and tweaking remote teaching and and I think diagnostic questions is one of those things not only is it largely unaffected by remote teaching mm. actually it probably becomes a central plank and kind mm. of mediates the some of the absence of you know physical contact and, and, and visible kind of aspects of the classroom so it feels like at this at this moment in time there's there's few things as useful and as important in mathematics teaching and probably in, in a lot of subject areas um just just to broaden that a little bit, and, we, and, and you might talk about, you know, kind of classroom, perhaps in, in more normal times, but also, you know, the remote classroom, and that's where people are at the moment, predominantly. In your experience, what are the other tasks and approaches that are really useful in helping to address people misconceptions? Yeah, it's, it's a real interesting one, this Alex. And I, again, I, I always make a point that, I mean, I, I don't know, I genuinely don't know much about maths teaching full stop, but when it comes to trying to transfer that knowledge outside of my little narrow maths bubble, mm. I'm, I, I'm absolutely clueless. So if we've got some non-maths teachers listening and you're thinking I'm talking nonsense, you, you're probably right with this. All I can talk about is, is through my narrow experience. But the first thing I'll say is that regardless of the task, you need a culture in the classroom where students are not afraid to tell you that either they don't understand something or they've got something wrong and so on. Um, Doug Lamarve would call this a, a creating a culture of error um, in the classroom. Now, just to, just to temporarily swerve back to diagnostic questions, what another advantage of, of regularly using diagnostic questions is that by their very nature, there are three wrong answers built into each question. And as a teacher, it's not just the case that I ask a diagnostic question, we conclude that the correct answer is A, and then we whiz on to something else. Once we've established the correct answer is A, we can then investigate the wrong answers. We can say, why might a student have thought the correct answer was B? And then even better than that, if they thought the answer was B, how would we help convince them that the answer cannot be B? So we can get students thinking at, at a deeper level with these diagnostic questions. So that not only gets them thinking a bit deeper, but it also creates this culture where there are right answers and wrong answers to questions but those wrong answers can be really, really useful. So once students are used to being exposed to questions where sometimes there's a, they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong, then it becomes quite a natural transition to when they're doing normal work, whatever it is, you know, open-ended questions, uh, open response questions, to a natural transition to say, okay, well, 
I haven't got the right answer for this, but that's okay. Let's see if we can learn from it and so on. So that's the first thing I'd say, that regardless of the resource that you use, having this culture of error, which can be fostered from diagnostic questions, but also fostered from just the teacher's positive attitude and and um, and, and kind of obviously making it clear that it's not you're not right all the time and so on. And that can really help at least get the misconceptions to the surface. Because the worst thing in the world is if a student's struggling with something and they try and cover it up or they don't tell you and it just lays just lays there dormant, ready to bubble up at some point in the future. Um, but aside from that, yeah, any task can be used to, to, to reveal misconceptions. And um, math, math is a really interesting one because, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche to say that there's, there's you know, a right answer and a wrong answer to, to most maths problems. So if, if a student gets something wrong, doesn't, doesn't get the right answer, then we can start to kind of dig into that and do a bit of detective work and try to see where that might have gone wrong and, and what the misconception might be. So that can be from anything. It can be a from a series of textbook questions. It could be a series of carefully varied uh, practice questions. It can be from an inquiry task, something like that. I would imagine, and I could be completely wrong on this, Alex, but for a subject like, like English, that it might be a little bit harder if a student submitted an extended piece of writing to try and diagnose some of those misconceptions in there. I think as maths teachers, we, we get a little bit luckier uh, with regard to that anyway. Yeah, I think I think there's a good point there to reiterate in terms of the disciplinary differences, those subject specific differences. So in the EF guidance in science, you know, misconceptions is right there at the heart of science. And some of these science mis misconceptions are drawn from just kind of um, notions of life and you know, blue blood and oxygenated blood, where some of those misconceptions in mathematics come from a very different place. Mm. We diagnose them slightly differently. We, ad we address them slightly differently. In terms of um, the generic and then the specific, I think one generic aspect can be um, that whether it's um, in English or, or science or mathematics, when pupils have a misconception and, and they're kind of maybe exposed that misconception that mm. they can actually be quite vocal in their defense mm. um, whether whether can we say whether that's a that happens in the maths classroom do you think is that happen to you and and if so what would be kind of broad advice on tackling that type of you know vocal defense of a misconception yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting one. It definitely has happened to me um, several times. It also, I'm lucky enough these days to do lots of workshops for, for, for teachers. And I often use diagnostic questions, um, obviously, in the workshop. And you'll get this from teachers as well, who are, in fact, I had it today. I posted a, a, a daily diagnostic question on Twitter and it was all kicking off. I got some really angry messages in my yeah. DMs saying, um, I've got the answer wrong. And it's only whenever the teachers reread the question and saw, actually, no, no, it's not. So yeah, you, it, you've, people are very protective of their understanding and, and the answer that stems from, from their understanding. So th there's two points I'd make on this. The first is just to re reiterate this culture of error. Once you create this positive culture in the classroom where, and I think we've got to be careful here. I think there's a danger we go too far. I don't want to over-celebrate mistakes. I often see this, and I think some of the literature could be misread in this this way. We're, we're, it seems pretty sensible that mistakes are a key part of learning. That that seems, you know, you couldn't really object to that. But there's a danger you take that too far and you consider mistakes almost as, as good as the right answer. And, and I've seen this in, in lessons, and I've been guilty of this, where a child gets something wrong and you're like, oh, that's fantastic. I'm so pleased you got that wrong answer because now we can discuss it. Well, the there the incentive shifts if you're a child who likes praise you're not going to get much praise if you get it right but you are if you get it wrong and there's a danger it kind of skews a little bit that way it's it's rare but it, it, it's, it's something i've certainly seen happen so um that that's the um 
Yeah, that's that's the first that's the first point. The second point about about the use of uh, addressing misconceptions and, and drawing them out is that actually, if you read research into this, we know mistakes are a key part of learning. But when we expose these misconceptions to, to students or try and draw them out, it is really important. So there's lots of research in, in terms of maths about this. As I say, I can't speak for other, other subjects, but we know for, in maths research, it's a really good idea that once students have learned the basics of something, to show them that done wrong, the procedure, the method, the idea done wrong, and get them to try and explain why it's gone wrong, identify the problem and explain why. So that's a really good idea. What's not such a good idea is to do that really early before students have got any familiarity or security with the basic idea itself, because there's a real danger. Let's go back to fractions. We show students one example of how to add fractions, and then we show them a wrong example and say, what's wrong with this well there's a real danger if they don't have that security of the correct way of doing it they start to get really muddled up not only can they not appreciate the mistake but they may internalize the mistake and remember it as being the right way of doing things so i'm always careful to to start using things like diagnostic questions after students have been taught the right way and demonstrated they've got a bit of fluency a bit of confidence with that right way then it's the time to try and deepen their learning by saying okay this is the correct way to do it how might somebody go wrong? Where's this wrong answer come from? And so on. I hope that makes sense anyway. Yes, it does. Uh, if I, I'll go back to one point you made around, there's some really practical advice there around pedagogy and, and the real sensitive choices we make around problems and you know whether we show solutions. And th there's lots of nuance there. And I think if I go back to a point you made around some impassioned replies today that you received, <laughs> I think maths... I, not new, not uniquely. You know, if we talk about you know other other subject areas and grammar, there's there's other topics that also you know people are very passionate about. I think maths can inspire a lot of passion. At the moment, I think we're in a, a unique position where so many pupils are working remotely, and so we have now this this situation where a lot of parents are at home, you know, thinking and, and supporting the different ages of children with mathematics and you've got teachers who are trying to kind of work with new habits and, and teach mathematics effectively remotely so can we end with a, a final kind of piece of advice both for teachers and for parents around mathematics and, and effective teaching at this moment and, and we could probably give lots of different aspects of advice but if you could distill it into one piece of advice for teachers and one piece of advice for parents yeah, I'll go for that. I'll go for the parents one first, uh, just because this is something I've been thinking about um, a lot recently. I, I go back to um, the series of interviews I conducted with researchers from from Loughborough University. One of them uh, was um, with a pr professor who had re whose uh, PhD in research was into parental engagement and um, the impact that it has on um, students' maths achievement going forward. And he made a really interesting point. He said, if you if you ask parents. How do they want to support their child with maths? What they want to do is essentially play the role of teacher. They want to, if a child's stuck on a problem, they want to know how to help them. So if they're stuck 
you know, with some angle problem, they want to sit down, get the protractor out and, and help them solve it. But of course, that's completely impractical because you'd need to be an expert in, in every subject to be able to do that, you know, up to GCSE, up to A level and, and beyond and so on. And whereas what, um, what, what actually seems to come out of the research on this is, is the, the two most effective things parents can do. This, and I, this is only maths. I don't know if this translates yeah. across. Mm. But the first is to just have a positive attitude about mathematics. Mathematics often gets a bad name. You often hear parents saying, I was never a mathematician. I'm more of an English person. or I don't like numbers and so on. Kind of cutting all that out and try and talk about math in a more positive way, or at least not in a negative way. And secondly, just not being able to solve the problems, but being, but knowing where to go to help support the child. So whether it is knowing the right YouTube channel to go to, or the right textbook to go to, or, or Oak Academy or something, something like that, knowing where to go. And then you can say, okay, you're stuck on this. Don't worry about it. Let's go here together and let's either see if we can figure it out together, or you know far more than me, but let's watch this video together and so on. That, that's the first advice I'd have for, for parents. Don't try and do too much. Just know where to go for support and just try and be as positive as you can um, yeah. about your subject. That's, that's the first thing I'd say. Um, and the second thing I'd, uh, for, for teachers... This is, this is a really interesting one, I think. I've been lucky enough to interview um, Oliver Lovell uh, recently for my podcast about cognitive load theory. Um, and he made a really interesting point about online learning at the moment. And he said that what you've got to be aware of is when students are learning something online, there's a higher degree of extraneous load than there would be when they use it learning it in the classroom. And for those of people who aren't versed in cognitive load theory, extraneous load is essentially really bad news. It, it's stuff that clogs up attention and working memory, but not in a useful way. And the reason for this is that students aren't used to learning things online. They're not used to sitting in front of a computer for, for two to three hours and actually either doing mathematics or English or geography and so on and so forth. So potentially there's more distractions, potentially they get tired, they're, they're looking to switch off and so on and so forth. So the advice I'd have for teachers is to bear this in mind. And, and the practical thing there is just don't, don't imagine you're going to get through as much as you would do in a normal face-to-face 50-minute -face lesson. Strip back the content. Think carefully about the content of any slides you're going you're gonna to use. Think about the other thing from cognitive load theory that I think is really important for, for online learning, transient information effects. So if you have something on one slide and then you move to the next, the kids will forget it. Whereas in a classroom, you've probably got it permanent on some kind of board somewhere. So just, just being aware of what the students are going through, not trying to fit in as much as you would do normally and just trying to make sure all the key things are visible for students so they don't have to try and hold it hold it in their minds um, at, at any one time. So they're, they're two, just a couple of things I've been thinking about with, with regard to the situation we're all in at the moment. That's really useful, Craig. Thank you. And it's great how you can just effortlessly draw upon those different sources of research. I think, I think your journey as a teacher and someone who's just engaged more broadly and become evidence-informed, I know that's been a really powerful message for so many maths teachers. And at this time, you know, particularly when we're, we're sometimes you know, scrapping for kind of guidance and advice, I, your story is really positive and I think your advice is is equally really positive and helpful so big thank you uh, and thanks for joining the podcast oh it's been an absolute pleasure Alex I quite like answering questions actually I might, might go for a change of career in the podcast here I like that no I re really enjoyed it mate excellent thank you Gives me great pleasure to introduce our next guest, Fliss James, who's an early years teacher at Sheringham Nursery School, Newham, London. 
and she's an SLE and an ELE, Evidence Leader in Education for East London Research School. And it'd be great just to hear a bit more about your own background, Fliss, and particularly where your interest in um, early mathematics, teaching and learning began. Hi, Alex. Um, thank you for inviting me to speak today. Um, so um, I've been an early years teacher, predominantly in nursery schools for almost 18 years now. And I'm really passionate about early years and the impact that it has on children's life chances and you know what happens really does make a difference. And I think in terms of how I came about um, sort of focusing on early maths, really was very much when I was um, had been teaching for a few years and I'd gotten to that point in that particular school where I've been asked to lead a subject area and I think in all honesty I was hoping for early language and communication because that's what I was really passionate about and I got asked to um, lead on maths and so in that moment I think I really started to kind of reflect on my own personal feelings about maths, my own sort of um, confidence, which I think wasn't, wasn't great. You know, I don't think I had a particularly great maths education. And so I don't think I was very confident about it. And so I think at that point, I felt really compelled and motivated to learn about early childhood maths and to gather as much knowledge and understanding as I possibly could. And at that point in time, I was, I was really lucky to work with a number of, of experts and you know I sort of reflect on that now and I feel really appreciative of how um, spending time with, with people like Linda Pound um, who'd done an awful lot of uh, writing around early years but with a real kind of focus on early maths just reframed my thinking um, and I think I started to really look at maths completely differently as this um, you know, creative um, subject and to see the joy and the beauty in it. And particularly when you're thinking about young children and their play and learning and that exploration and that sort of meaning making, um, I really started to enjoy it. And so since then, I've kind of just kind of developed my understanding further and, um, you know, started to kind of really, yeah, sort of enjoy kind of reading research about early maths and attending seminars and yeah it's been been quite a shift really considering how I, I personally felt about my own maths knowledge and um and education. I, I wonder if there's a lot of audience members and particularly those who don't feel confident in maths themselves who've gone through a similar experience. I think there's something isn't there about society where um early language is both prioritised and, and valued, but everyone feels they have to be confident and understand it because it's so integral. But maybe early maths just doesn't quite have that same attention given to it, that same confidence people bring to it. And yet we know that early maths skills and knowledge being developed well is so crucial. Do you think early maths gets the attention it deserves in, ter in terms of pupils' early development and, and, and success? I think there's been a shift. I think that there is starting to be a greater emphasis because, you know, we're starting to really learn from the most recent research. Um, and I, I remember an experience that I had um, being involved in the uh, Williams Maths Review. And one of the kind of comments that was made was about how we're, we're almost like okay with being embarrassed about 
about not being confident about maths. And, you know, so if we, we don't really necessarily um, talk about, you know, early literacy and our literacy skills like that. So it's, it's quite interesting. And I think that, yeah, it, it, there hasn't been that same emphasis. And I think it's really starting to change, particularly with a lot of the work that's going on in America as well, that's been sort of coming through. Um, and so I think, you know, we, we know just how important early maths is to children's um, later achievement. And I think, you know, if we can start to really try and kind of win hearts and minds and support practitioners to feel comfortable and confident um, and to really kind of focus in on children because it's about children being entitled to a strong mathematical foundation. And it's about as kind of as adults really um, sort of really reflecting on, on how we can um, support children's dispositions and attitudes. Um, so I think that that's something that we want to instill in children. We want adults to be, you know, sort of really thinking about ways in which we can promote positivity and success in mathematics. Um, and that's something that, yeah, I, I feel quite passionate about. But I think there has been a shift, definitely. That's really interesting. And I think there's probably something around the confidence of practitioners and, and even parents and people outside the school gates around maths that does influence some of our attitudes um, to the early years. There's something perhaps as well about misconceptions that the, the naturalness of maths and that processes like counting seem so natural that you don't need to give them care and attention when actually it's a really complex process. Can you can you say a little bit more about both the, the complexity of some of these seemingly natural processes, but what type of practices actually move from the complex to great practice and good early development? Yeah, absolutely. And I, th I think that's a really important point to make that, you know, counting is so complex and yet it's a part of young children's daily life and children love to count. They love to count everything from, you know, the stairs they climb to crackers they eat. But it's so important to really kind of um, help children develop an understanding of, of what the point of counting is. Um, and, and, you know, there are some kind of big ideas that underpin what counting actually is. These principles that, you know, we really need to develop this sense of what counting is. That the idea that counting has rules that apply to any connection. And that the point of counting is that it's used to find out how many things there are in a collection. And I think we often see um, children counting with adults or being asked to count, and they don't really know why they're counting. They'll engage in it, and it's a lovely social activity, and the children might know the numbers in order and want to recite the numbers, but not necessarily understanding those key kind of principles. And that actually the point is, the reason why they're actually counting is to find out how many. So a massively overlooked part of counting is understanding the cardinal principle, understanding that that last number 
when counting tells you how many and it's massively overlooked in early years education um, because children can seemingly be quite confident in knowing the count sequence they might even be able to count one to one and making that correspondence but not necessarily know that at the end of finishing that count sequence that that last number tells them how many objects they have. And it's something that early years practitioners can often overlook. It's something that we really do need to um, focus on. And connected to that is the idea of subitizing. And so subitizing is that recognition of small quantities of objects up to about five instantaneously. And this is a, a, a skill that we are born with. Um, we have this sensitivity to quantity. And it's really important to kind of acknowledge that and be aware of how important that is and how it connects to this idea of cardinality, that, you know, how many. And so in terms of um, subitizing, it introduces this basic idea of more and less and parts and wholes and relationships and just this general idea of quantity. But the key is, is that although children are sensitive to quantity, Interactions with others are absolutely essential to learning about subitizing and doesn't develop on its own. And I think that also is leads into that idea of just how powerful the role of the adult is when really supporting children's young mathematical thinking and learning. So that idea that, you know, counting is part of every, everyday life for children, that they have this sort of sensitivity to quantity and it's about the adults really kind of supporting, nurturing and connecting all those ideas for children in meaningful and appropriate kind of context throughout their day-to-day their -day life. And I think one of the things that I've been doing a lot of work on more recently around kind of that early number sense and early counting is really focusing on supporting the practitioners I work with to tune into subitizing the counting principles and that fundamental concept that actually the point of counting is is to find out how many and how to kind of find practical ways to connect all those really key concepts um, both indoors outdoors throughout the day-to-day -day routine um, in activities through stories and through lovely rich conversations as well. That's really interesting. So you've talked about processes like cardinality and, and subitizing, which that's that's part of a, an expert early years practitioner's repertoire. But you've also touched on aspects which seem a bit more, a bit broader. So the likes of um, social interactions, prior experiences, language skills that relate to that. Can you talk a little bit then about these these broader factors to consider? Absolutely. I mean, we have to really think about the bigger picture of children's learning and development. Um, and, you know, as, as you've already identified, language is absolutely critical. Children need the language to be able to, uh, to talk about mathematical concepts. And it's so, so important for um, practitioners to have that understanding um, so that they can kind of enable children to effectively communicate um, mathematical language and support that development of ideas. So language skills is really important. 
it's really important to really factor in and consider children's prior experiences um, with, with early maths. Um, often children will have had all sorts of different experiences, maybe in the home or if they've been to a setting prior to attending nursery or reception. And we have to really be mindful of the fact that sometimes children have had, have had experiences with quite formalised maths. Um, it was worksheets and inappropriate kind of activities and I think we really have to be mindful of that because children can come to us having for example quite a lot of um, knowledge about uh, numerals but don't necessarily understand what those numerals represent and that that connection between that number symbol and quantity hasn't been developed through all those lovely rich meaningful playful um, contexts so I think that that's really important to factor in. We also have to kind of think about, you know, children's interests, enjoyment, their attitudes and dispositions, and, and that level of motivation as well. We really have to kind of think about that because we want children to be motivated to learn as well. That sounds like a, a really good example of what in the um, EF Early Years and Key Stage 1 guidance report indicates as purposeful mathematical activity and activity that develops maths understanding but also motivation and, and and picks up on that curiosity. Can you give us an example of what what you would describe as really effective purposeful mathematical activity? Absolutely I think we really have to think about the, just the breadth of opportunities that we can provide children through different contexts so really thinking about you know books puzzles, songs and rhymes. I think something that um, I personally really enjoy in terms of thinking about those um, purposeful activities is snack time and tidying up and kind of exploiting those routines and really kind of ensuring that, that, that you're kind of enabling children to see the purpose behind why you're doing what you're doing. So, for example, at Sheringham, we have a wonderful kind of area for snack time and the children are very much encouraged to be fully involved in the process of snack time. So, you know, pouring their own drinks and, you know, spreading butter on crackers and, you know, working out how many chairs we need or plates or bowls. And so within that, context there are just so many meaningful ways to really support children's um, understanding of subitizing early counting but also things like spatial reasoning and thinking like that whole idea of spreading butter on your cracker for example so I think that that's a really wonderful way to that's very meaningful that engages children children are always motivated by food if you're thinking about snack <laughs> So, you know, making sure there's enough for, for me is very important for a three-year-old. Um, and so it's a really wonderful way to support that purposeful um, teaching. I think uh, additionally, in terms of the types of activities, I think we can't underestimate the power of outdoor learning. And this idea of doing things huge and outdoors, um, things on a big scale and sort of really getting children's whole bodies involved in um, that mathematical thinking as well. 
So, Fliss, I mean, all this talk about snack time, I'm a little bit worried that the podcast listeners are now going to be stuffing their face. Um, But it's a really great example to end on because I think it captures both for parents and caregivers as much as for early as practitioners that maths opportunities and and purposeful activities are, are all around us. And actually, the early math development is so key, we need to seize upon all those opportunities. So I just want to say a big thank you again, Fliss, for coming on to the podcast and for all your brilliant work at Sheringham Nursery School and and for the East London Research School. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a real privilege to speak to Fliss and Simon and Craig and to have those diverse insights into everything mathematics. There were a couple of final thoughts for me in terms of bringing together some of that diverse experience. And one of the first things that stood out for me, and it came through in all of those interviews, was just how important it was for Craig and Simon and Fliss to engage with research evidence. That at one point in their career, they didn't feel they had the confidence to make decisions around mathematics or to talk openly about mathematics. And it was important as part of their development as teachers, as practitioners, to engage with evidence. And that really struck me. And also, my background is pretty much literacy. And so mathematics is an area where I lack confidence in as a parent and talking about pedagogy and mathematics. And I felt really emboldened and and more confident after hearing from Fliss and Craig about what I can do as a parent, but also that maths is complex and that what processes are undertaken in nursery settings and primary and secondary schools is nuanced and, and subtle and teachers need to be experts but also as a parent, I can access and and, and support in meaningful ways too. So there's something about the importance of mathematics and perhaps, and maybe I'm guilty of this on a personal note, that perhaps when we think of early mathematics and the crucial importance of it, we often prioritise literacy and language and crucial though those are, perhaps mathematics is, is the poor sibling by contrast. So it's made me reflect on the importance of mathematics all the way from the early years through secondary school and beyond the school gates too. Thank you for listening. Just remain to me to invite you to subscribe to this podcast and please join us for our next episode, which is on the always interesting topic of reading. Thank you for listening. <laughs>